Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our session. Before we start, I'm going to ask you to just pause with me to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we're meeting, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We acknowledge and pay our respects to the elders of that community, past, present, and emerging. Um, my name is Anton Enos. My day job is at SBS World News, and normally on a Friday afternoon at four, I'm doing a live news update. This is uh, so much more interesting. So thank you for joining us here today. Um, and if you're absolutely sick and tired of the federal election campaign, you've come <laughs> to the right place because this is your antidote to the shysters and grifters and hucksters that are trying to you know, persuade you to do things that you don't want to do. So welcome to our session. It's, um, I think, going to be a very interesting session. We've got two interesting books. Our two guests uh, include one who has written extensively in journalism, in fiction and in nonfiction, most notably The Tall Man about the Palm Island riots, uh, the Engagement, and more recently, The Arsonist, about the fires in the Latrobe Valley. Our other guest about to join us on the big screen, due to the uh, pandemic that we're living in at the moment, um, is a star of stage and TV. She has written extensively for the screen, for the stage, including uh, writing credits include All Saints, Neighbours, um, Home and Away, and Wonderland, um, she's also a memoirist, so she's going to be joining us to talk about her book. These are the two books here. Please welcome Chloe Hooper and Sarah Walker. Oh, thank you. The first time I thought I was dying, collection of essays there, and Chloe Hooper's bedtime story about her family's uh, efforts to deal with cancer. So I'm going to start, Chloe, with asking you... Um, about the cancer at the centre of your story. Don Watson, of course, your partner, diagnosed, um, which created a kind of shock within your family. How is Don doing? Well, it's a, um, a, a plot spoiler that, that he is in remission and um, we, we're very grateful for um, the extra time we, we have together. Thanks for asking. Um, he does kind of, this session is not about Don, but he does kind of, he's there on every page, isn't he? I mean, this thing that, um, that has kind of entered into your lives as a family kind of dominates the, the proceedings. Um, I was wondering how, what did he make of this book, that you're writing a book essentially about him and about the family's response to what's happening to him? Yes. Well, I, I mean, I, I think when... Um when this happened, um, he was he was diagnosed with an aggressive blood cancer, and um, it was an in incredible shock. And um, you know, all of the, all the things sort of racing through your through uh, my mind. Um, one of them is I'm going to need to keep working, and so. Um, you know, getting sick—it's an—it's an expensive business, and um, but but you know, really, uh, I think writers often take their notebook into um, difficult, personal terrain. It's a bit like sort of diary writing, and it's a way of, you know, sort of externalizing what's going on. And you feel as though if you're controlling what's on the page, maybe you can control what's going on in your head to some extent. Um, but we, I think that there was a kind of high noon moment where who's going to grab their pen first to write about this? And I, I did have him at a disadvantage. Um, just kind of reading between the lines, it seems like you were working on The Arsonist as well yes, at the right. time. So yes. when did you find time then to work on this manuscript? Well, I was um, taking notes throughout... Um, um, the year when the, when our family was dealing with this, and um, when the arsonist was finished, I I sort of went I sort of um, went deeper into the story, and um, you know here's here's the here's the result. 
very good. Um, we, um, for those of you who don't know, we, um, Chloe and I did an, a session about the arsonist ad, in Adelaide a, a couple of years ago. Was it last year, the year before? Fantastic book. I would definitely recommend that to you as well. Um, let's bring Sarah in. Um, she's uh, waving to us, and she has a companion behind her, as you can see. Uh, not the stuffed one on the bookshelf, the one that's uh, posing on Kills the sofa there. Feels mostly asleep. <laughs> Um, so I guess the, the, the commonality of the two books, uh, Sarah, is um, how we engage with art in terms of um, dealing with trauma. Um, I couldn't help noticing that physicality features quite strongly in um, your work, not just in this collection, but also in the other stuff you've done on stage and so on. Tell us about the way you think about the body, the physical body, on screen, on screen, on stage, in front of the camera? Well, I mean, I've always been a person who's had this kind of sense of being a fairly functional brain housed within a pretty shithouse body that keeps sort of falling apart in a series of unpredictable ways. Um, and that, that sense of tension uh, with the body as a site of kind of uh, disarray that keeps collapsing, that is fundamentally uncontrollable, is really at the heart of a lot of the work that I do. As a as a fine artist, I do a lot of work about using um, comedy and, and uh, fractured narrative as ways to um, have an entryway to talking about uh, disaster, death, and catastrophe. No cheery stuff. Um, but in in the book, yeah, the the idea of control is. Um, really the framework through which the book functions and the idea in a kind of late capitalist society that we expect ourselves to be able to control our physical forms, to be able to control what happens to us. Uh, and by controlling our bodies, maybe we are able to control the world around us, which is this fundamental fiction that we all seem to uh, ascribe to. So, um, subscribe to. So, yeah, the book is really kind of looking at that fundamental idea from a, a series of different vantage points. Um, I'm going to get back to that uh, idea of control a little bit later, but just the, the, the nature of looking through a device, like a, mm -hmm. a, a camera. Um, you know, I've spent almost 40 years now <laughs> in a job that requires me to look at a camera all the time, and I really mm -hmm. don't like having a camera pointed at me. It's, it's, it's part of, I guess, the lack of feedback, and so it's slightly different if there's a person behind the device. Mm -hmm. I mean, you make art from both sides of the camera. Um, does being a performer uh, make you a better photographer? That's an interesting question. I think it, it does in the sense that I'm aware that I think often when you've got a camera in front of you, you're thinking about so many things. You're thinking about the light, you're thinking about the framing. And um, a lot of photographers don't do a very good job of remembering that the person in front of them is a, is a person, that there's a huge amount of vulnerability Okay, we seem to have lost Sarah for a moment. Capture, we shoot. Um, so I think it, it makes me aware of the kind of nervous, wobbly personhood on the other side of the, the camera and the need to really engage with that vulnerability. Um, and also being very aware that as a photographer, it requires a great deal of trust from the person I'm shooting. And there is a huge amount of power in my job. Um, when, I, when I teach, I say to my students, look at um, photographs of politicians when there's a, an article that is um, it, that is in support of whatever is going on, the politician usually has their mouth open and then ah like this. But <laughs> if they don't, if 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 there's a kind of a, um, a hit piece on a politician, they're often saying the letter F because it makes them look yeah. stupid, um, or they're kind of looking down. You know, like there's a huge amount of power in the moments you choose to ca uh, capture and to edit. Uh, and I, I think being a performer makes me aware of that because I've been on the other side and, and looked back and thought that's not how that felt for me. Um, you also said, you know, we, we kind of take it for granted that there's an old saying, the camera never lies. But in fact, um, you argue quite strongly in this book that that's exactly what it does. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I mean, anyone who's ever, I think maybe this phrase comes from a time before most people held cameras, but now we all have a camera in our phones and we've all experienced the difference between shooting a, an image from this angle and from this angle. You know, like it, we have so much control over the way that we um, present the world, what we choose to frame out, how we choose to, to represent our, ourselves and the people around us. And um, photography is fundamentally a series of decisions made by a human operator of a machine. And the machine um, 
just captures whatever you tell it to. But the key thing about photography is that you're telling it what to see. You're telling it when to look. Um, so I'll ask this question of both of you, um, Chloe. Uh, to what extent was writing this manuscript a form of catharsis for you, a form of self-therapy at a time that was really, really challenging? I think it was. Uh, that was a very that was a very big part of the of the project, and I um, started looking into children's literature, and I was searching for the perfect book that I was going to tell our kids um, that would, you know, f neatly frame uh, mortality for them and um, their father's situation and our family's situation. And um, uh, at a certain point, I stopped looking for the story and I started looking at the storytellers. And um, it was really striking to me that... Um, you know, our most lionised children's authors from the Brothers Grimm to Hans Christian Andersen, um, Tolkien, Francis Hodgkin Burnett, Ellen Montgomery, uh, C.S. Lewis, Dahl, mm. Pullman, they, they all suffered a childhood bereavement. And you could say, I suppose, that there's an element of, of grief in, embedded in enchantment, but also I think these authors... Um, use their work as uh, a kind of um, um, as their own um, therapy, I suppose. I mean, and um, we're we're lucky, you know, that they did. I'll get back to that point in a moment. But Sarah, um, you go to some pretty dark places in this book. I mean, it's got quite a sort of the tone of the title seems kind of light. But I'll ask you the same question. You know, was, was this a form of self-therapy in writing this book? Look, um, there, there, there is a lot of darkness in this book, but there's also, and I really want to um, emphasise this, there is also a lot of levity to it. I think I really tried to allow absurdity to make its way into the, the writing process because I kind of, I feel a bit uncomfortable with this notion of, of writing as a form of self-therapy because um I don't want to use a reader as a therapist because I, I pay a therapist a lot of money to sit and listen to my bullshit. And um, I think the thing that writers do really well is that if therapy is the idea of just telling the facts as you understand them, writing is a way of, of reframing, of telling a story that is greater than the sum of its parts, of, of looking at poetry and, and humour and all of these tools that we use to tell a story that feels like it has some greater resonance than just let me tell you how bad my experience was. And I think Good Craft, and Chloe, you do this so beautifully in your book, is um, a form of stepping away and coming close and that kind of um, shifting of scales is exactly what therapy isn't. And so I think you are very aware of your reader in your writing and I tried to be as well. Having said that, I found it quite therapeutic reading both of these books because you kind of, in a sense, you're kind of going to those places in a very safe way because, you know, I'm sort of at arm's length, but you kind of feel the emotions and you feel what you're going through. Chloe, um, those authors that you spoke about, Pullman and so on, um, used fantasy and fiction to mm. kind of... Recast their yes, experiences. exactly. Yep. You didn't, though, so wh wh why didn't you go in that direction since you could have, you know, that was a choice for you? Well, I'm, I just want to say, Sarah, I, I share your sort of like slight, you know, allergy to the, the, the word therapy, you know, in this, in this context. Context, but I, I guess therapy is sort of about uh, finding, you know, one's place in the world and, and trying to understand the world and ourselves. And we 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 also try to do this through through reading. Um, why did I not do that? Well, I'm not a children's book author. I, I um, could be. <laughs> I, I don't know that I could actually. Um, but um, there are. There are moments, I guess, where um, I, I sort of try to enter into that mode and I was very lucky that Anna Walker, who is a brilliant uh, illustrator, sort of was prepared to uh, illustrate this book with me. And, and um, um, But no, I'm not, a, I'm not good at telling kids' stories. But Don, I mean, we, there are a couple of his stories in this book and he, um, he has been the storyteller in our household. So what, in, um, in writing down all your thoughts in, in this form, yes. what was your fear in terms of the boys who were much younger then um, misunderstanding what was going on? Uh, 
Well, look, I, th I suppose that I realised that um, I wasn't conscious that we'd avoided talking about death with the kids. I was writing The Arsonist, you know, as you, as you, as you know, and, and they knew about that book and they, um, you know, had um, um, understood about the fire and had met um, a woman who'd lost kids in the fire. And yet, actually, when it's sort of, you know, uh, uh, often we think of death as being this, this horrible thing that happens to other people. Um, all, all of us have this sort of ability to switch off. And... Um, I guess I wanted to make a record for them of this period in their lives, which may be a kind of pivotal moment that they might be able to look back. I mean, in a way, it's a letter to them um, and understand a little bit more about um, where they where they came from and um, and how um, we we can get sustenance and, and consolation from from uh, the words of others. Did you feel in those early days that um, sort of in your gut that the, the boys were coping with the situation? Did they know that something was going on and something that was not very nice? <laughs> yes, well, sorry, I, I didn't finish that, that thought, I suppose, that I, um, you know, I, I wasn't aware that we um, had avoided the topic, but actually... Um, we, our instinct was not to tell them, to to protect them, to um, sort of maintain um, this sort of uh, this moment of of happiness. Don's prognosis was very poor, and um, I now know, of course, we um, we should have been upfront and um, told them in a simple way what was going on, because. Uh, you know, it created a kind of a monster in our house of, of everything that was um, being denied and the sort of sotto voce conversations and the tension. And, of course, I mean, how could they not have picked up how weird we were, you know, being? So this will explain to them later. Okay. There's not an obvious segue from every question to the <laughs> next. So I'm just going to sort of tic-tac here, um, Sarah. Um, Talking about body image, I mean, you tell the story of how, as a child, you looked into a mirror and you saw a fat girl there that sort of led in, in, the, in the future then to compulsive dieting as a young adult, to obsessive working out in the gym and so on. What, what was going on with, with the kind of self-image and the sort of obsession with your body? You know, it, it only really has been in the process of, of writing this book that I became aware that growing up there was this great fear in the household that I grew up in. Um, when I was born, my mother had lost a child recently. She'd lost her father very traumatically. My um, dad had uh, just lost his brother also very traumatically. That throughout my childhood there was this real, like I, this, this thing you talk about and write about, Chloe, in your book about how we all... Um, feel like death is a thing that happens to other people. I feel like I've always grown up with this deeply embedded knowledge that I was very vulnerable and that I was going to die. And part of that is because I was a child who had very bad asthma, so I invariably just couldn't breathe. Um, but I've, I remember being three and running into my parents' room and saying, um, uh, I don't want to die. I don't, and my parents were like, why? Okay, you can only just talk. Like, how are you? <laughs> You're not going to die for a while. Calm down. But um my father was diagnosed with cancer when I was, um, you know, I don't even know how old I was. I, I, I remember distinctly being sat down. My dad is like the, the um, award winner for most cancer diagnoses. I think he's up to his fifth now. Um, but at the time, this was his second and, and the family was sat down and um, my dad said, look, I've been diagnosed, diagnosed with prostate cancer and my mum and my brother both burst into tears and my dad burst into tears and I, I remember being like, are you, are you going to die? And he was like, I don't know. And I was like, okay, well, I'll, I guess I'll save my feelings for, for when I know I need to use them. So I think I grew up uh, on the one hand being very, um, very good at kind of holding things in um, but also grew up with this real sense that um, the way to... Uh, avoid feelings of anxiety and fear was through success um, and through control, uh, which I think is 
is the case for a lot of young people. I mean, I write in the book about how um, upon confessing this kind of deeply disordered eating to a friend and expecting them to be really shocked, um, their response instead was, oh, so you were a, you were a teenage girl. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, this was something I was also very surrounded by, but I, I distinctly remember the, the thrill of the control of that period of time, the thrill of being able to sculpt this body into this kind of woozy skeleton but um yeah that that mastery was such an extraordinary feeling um and as a young person who was very anxious that was one of the few places where I felt that sense of control and mastery and then of course uh, it turns out it's not a very good way to exert control over your body because your body um, actually needs food in order to function um but yeah I think I grew up as a child very aware of the kind of um the ways in which things could go wrong, and I was really trying to exert um, power of my own body to try to keep it to keep it together and to stop to stop everything else from from being chaotic. So, when you looked into the mirror as a child, you saw a fat girl, and we know that in the gym everyone's looking at themselves. What did you see then? That first essay in the book, Healing Brush, is kind of a um, it's about two fundamental things. One of which is. Um, body image and the other of which is photography and and then both being modes of control. I started um, photographing around the time um, in my uh, late teens, early 20s when I started to put on weight again. And um, I discovered that instead of starving myself, I could just photograph myself from very flattering angles. And then it looked to all the world um, as though I was still kind of this sleek, young um, individual. But also, um, so the process of the relationship with both my body and my practice has been one of complication, one of sitting in kind of not knowing and sitting in in being aware of ethical quandaries kind of colliding. Um, and then I write in the book about kind of hitting a point where instead of exercising in order to lose weight, I started exercising in order to be strong. I discovered weightlifting, which was a real um, uh, kind of extraordinary thing for, for a woman who is socialised to be um, to, not hurt, to not hurt myself. There was always a lot of like, oh, don't do that, you'll fall over, oh, don't do that. Um, weightlifting is kind of a, it's really joyous to do a really kind of uh, masculine coded thing where, and you get, they have those great names for things. You get to deadlift. I mean, what a ridiculous, uh, badass name. But yeah, I started suddenly realizing that um, my body could not just shrink, it could also expand, but in joyous ways. And that was a real kind of um, moment of, of revelation and, and joy. The sequel should be called Deadlift. <laughs> Deadlift. That is a good. Yeah, I'm just, just, I'm just going to let you have that. Yeah, thank you. That's very kind. I'll write a little note in the uh, the front. Um, thank you. Well, talking about um, perceptions, you also um, you tell us that uh, Tobias's friend has a father who's going through a yes. very serious cancer yeah. situation as well. How does that change the dynamic? Because one is happening right here in your mm. home and another's happening kind of at arm's length, but the two boys have a connection. That's right. That's right. Uh, my, um, my son's uh, best friend's father was diagnosed a few weeks before Don. And um, this was in March 2018 and he died in, in November 2018. So we were very aware of um, the different way our story could have ended. And um, although that, that, that plot change, you know, um, come, comes for us all, but, um, you know, the, those boys are, are still best friends and um, um, it's... I guess, you know, I'm kind of constantly feel as though we're walking um, side by side in terms of um, of looking at actually the resilience of, mm. of kids and um, the way that, you know, I mean, the question was, how do I tell my children a story about this in a way that, um, that doesn't, um, you know, that leaves them loving life? How can we talk about... Uh, mortality in a way that makes us think about how to live better, and um, they've they've seen somebody withstand grief, and I mean it doesn't you know grief doesn't end, but you you manage to um, you know these these kids are um, leading really full and and happy lives, and and feel that their father is still part of uh, is still with them, but mm. in a different way. 
And in the midst of this, obviously, you still have your daily life, so your routines and so on, to keep the boys as normal as possible. Um, this sentence kind of leapt out at me from your book, and I'll ask you to comment on it. Um, it's about bedtime. While your brother Gabriel, Gabriel is asleep amidst his zoo of soft animals, you lie still. This is your favorite way for the dark to be subdued. Your father's voice is mellow and, and gruff notes, making the sentences stretch and break, cracking the night open. The bed is a kind of boat then, and you are sailing. So tell us about the magic of bedtime for two boys who have not one but two writers as parents. Well, they have a kind of dud as the, uh, you know, they have one fabulous storyteller, but by the end of the day, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not really wanting to... Um, tell them a story I'm sort of you know please just go to sleep <laughs> um but you know I think that I, you know I decided to you know I, I looked at their bookshelves and it and it seemed to be full Anton of uh, sort of anthropomorphic animals in in primary colors leading their best lives and I, I thought okay let's go back to the beginning and I wanted to know you know what did what did parents tell their children in in times of plague and war because 2018 was a, a more innocent age uh, than 2022. Um, and, I, you know, it took me back to, uh, from the beginning of time, you know, uh, an adult and a child have been together in the dark and um, an adult has said the words but the children has made the story as, you know, they've pictured the actors and their costumes and um, sort of um, the stunts. Uh, um, and an adult, adults have downloaded their most kind of precious information through uh, these, these tales. And um, so I don't know why it is that we tell stories at night, um, but, you know, all of us have some memory, I think, of um, you know, the light, um, you know, even if it's by a campfire, um, of, of sort of the dark cracking open and, and, this, and this kind of richness and magic, um, you know, be, being there, as well as often a kind of terror of the night. So mm. the, the, the two things seem to go together. Um, as you say, you go trawling through a lot of the sort of pantheon yes. of children's literature, including yeah. stuff like the Odyssey and the, the Iliad, which is quite scary, I think. <laughs> Fucking it scared is. me. It is, uh, yeah. Although that's, you know, been yeah. for, for thousands of years. Um, yeah. You know, people have educated... I mean, originally it was their sons, um, you know, in terms of how to be, you know, heroic by, by using that text. Mm. And the, we there are old sort of slates with... Um, a kind of Greek schoolboy has, um, you know, pra uh, written down a, a speech, you mm. know, and um, that's um, that's been the way that we've we've instructed and entertained our our young. So, in finding all of these texts, was there something missing for you that you felt that was not addressing what they needed in that situation? Were you looking for something else? I, I felt in contemporary um, children's books there was not what I needed, and yet there now I you know um, I know that there are some brilliant books which which cope with um, with bereavement and illness and and grief um, that actually my my sons and I wrote a, a sort of um, uh, we co-wrote co a review, which is in the, the Guardian, if anybody is actually looking for books in this, to be in this situation, that's, you know, that's there. Um, but I think that probably I also, um, you know, I needed a story to tell myself. And um, that was perhaps once, once I realised that... Um, you know, that I was wanting us to stay in some ways in this uh, beautiful Eric Carle uh, luminescent, um, you know, cocoon. Mm. I, I, and that life is not like that. Life was not like that for Eric Carle, who was sort of uh, that book 
the very hungry caterpillar is inspired by uh, his time as a um, a child with not enough food in war torn mm. Germany, with a, a father about to be sent off to a, a prison camp. Um, when I let darkness in, um, I could I could tell them better stories. Um, I was taken, Sarah, by the way you articulated how we as a society use shame to make people, especially women, police their own bodies. Um, lovely term that I'd never seen before that you use here, the, the hatriarchy. Uh, telling the people that, that, that was that's invented actually, by that's my another, friend Luke. That's another great title. I'm sorry to be <laughs> here like, planning your next two books, Sarah, but that's, that's, good. that's brilliant. But it really made me think about um, how we need to find value in what is not in a traditional sense, considered beautiful or sexy or shapely in our bodies. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think we've all, and, and this is not just true for women, I think we're all aware of occupying these very, um, these hairy, smelly, sounding bodies, um, but living in a world where acknowledging the, the truth of those things is kind of deeply upsetting um, socially. And, uh, yeah, I'm kind of interested in, in the notion of shame and how amazingly good it is at controlling us, at how the kind of idea of the public's gaze reflected back at us, it's just so extraordinarily powerful and making us behave in certain very coded ways. And that is, um, that comes through advertising, of course, and through media, but it is also something that we perform. One of the things I found very powerful about humour in, in this writing and also in my arts practice is um, that laughter forces this little moment of, of recognition and reflection. So we laugh and then we say, why is that funny? It's funny because it is a rupture. Why is it a rupture? Maybe the ways that we um, consider things absurd uh, are themselves an absurdity that, you know, being kind of horrified by our, our bodies um, is something that we can make a decision about and, and to say, actually, I mean, this isn't, this isn't serving us, is it? And being very open and generous with the way that we speak about our own experiences um, both of shame but also of all the things that socially we're, we're told to kind of press down. And death is a, a huge one of those, the, the extraordinary um, euphemisms that exist around death is so testament to that. Um, and the idea that this kind of um, unspeakable quality of, of death and, and terror and shame is really not a quality of being unable to speak or the words not existing. It's a, it's a quality of them being nasty and, and there being a difficulty on the hearing end so that we can speak them, but so much of um, our kind of polite society is about saying, oh, no, no, don't, don't tell me that. I don't want to hear it. Give me the euphemism. Give me the metaphor. And so I think um, one of the things that struck me about Bedtime Story, Chloe, is that you, you find that... Um, stripping back the, the metaphors and the cuteness and the dancing um, sort of sweet. Sorry, have I dropped out again? Just briefly. No, but there's, it's interesting, the idea, sorry, Anton, to, but, but that we're, we're animals, you know, we're these hairy um, kind of gross animals. And because we, we kind of can't face that, we also can't face that we're part of, there's a, there's a, a life cycle in terms of mm. being an animal. That, yeah, absolutely. That sort of ends in this way that we have a lot of metaphors for. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'll shut I mean, up now. No, um, that's great. Uh, cancer, as your, the oncologist says to you, is a numbers game. Yes. I discovered this for myself from yes. my own experience where yes. um, you realise that you're constantly monitoring things because things can go one way or another. Mm. Um, one of the things I struggled most with was that loss of control. Mm. There's something happening around you and in your body that you can't control, somebody's trying to help you control, but you can't fundamentally control that and you don't know where it's going to end up. I certainly felt that and I think it's clear from your book that that came through as well for, for you as a family. How did you cope with that loss of control within your family? Well, I think it's very, you know, anyone, I mean, well, I mean, who hasn't been in this situation in this audience? I'm sure that a lot of people have lived through some version of of this story, but it is, it's strange to wake up and you think um, that, you know, today will we'll bear some resemblance to tomorrow. And um, I, I guess, you know, I started to think about it in, you know, looking through the lens of, of children's stories, that you are a kind of protagonist 
or Don was the protagonist and you, Anton, have been in this sort of story where suddenly there are ill and benevolent winds and mm. you're, um, you're not in control of your own destiny, like the kind of the, the protagonist of, a, of a, a fairy tale, sort of, you know, a, a good witch comes in or a bad and, and act, you know, Jack, and, Jack seems to sort of go up the beanstalk and then has gold mm. um, through just a kind of series of accidents and um, you know suddenly you can't see the future and what it looks like and yet actually none of us can ever see the future and so in a way it um, you know relieves us from the sense that we know how the story ends and um, I, you know I found that a, a really interesting discipline not to not to kind of think about uh you know, the future tense. You really are kind of thrust into the present in a way that you can embrace if you if you choose to. Um, and at one point, uh, you're saying Don is such a good storyteller, you try to push him into recording, <laughs> writing down the yes. stories he's telling to the boys, leaving something yes. for them. There's an obvious implication in that request, of right? Course. Because of course. things could go completely yeah. bad. But he pushes back, right? Is that part of that control thing? Well, he, um, he, he did record the stories that he told the boys. Um, and, I mean, I think that once you're in this situation, you do start to think about questions of inheritance and you know for us there's it was it's you know we can leave you stories there may not be many material goods but um um you know here is this this kind of uh boat we can build for you that might take you out on dangerous waters um through through storytelling um, he resisted the idea of, um, I guess, you know, sometimes I've wanted him to actually explicitly, you know, address uh, mortality in his stories and, and, he's, and he has, um, he doesn't want his children to hear his stories and, and think about his absence. So um, he has, uh, his, his stories contain different wisdom, which is fair enough. I must tell you, just as a personal, on a personal note, I once sat down with my own father and interviewed him. He was a professional fighter in his day. Um, and it's one of the best things I've ever done um, because he did sub sub subsequently die. Was, I wasn't expecting him to die at the time, but I had, I've got this wonderful recording of him telling me what his life was mm. like as a child, mm. as a teenager, as yeah. a young man and yeah. so on. Um, so I would encourage people to, uh, you know, even if they push back a little, you know, kind of record your stories. Sarah, in your case, um, talking about control, um, this is one of those situations where I can segue because we're talking about control. You go in search of God, but instead you discover the world of theatre and the colourful personalities and the recreational drugs and so on. But that kind of headbutts your own sense of wanting to be in control all the time. How did that play out? Yeah, that essay is um, kind of about uh, my fear, kind of terror of vomiting as the kind of ultimate um, kind of bodily loss of control. And um, as a young person, I was a, I, I cannot overemphasize what an absolute goody to choose pain in the ass I was as a child. We drove past a church when I was about 10 and I said, why don't we go to church? And my parents went, oh, okay, well, all right. And I was, I was all in. I was extremely interested. Um, I ran the youth group. I got confirmed. I did all the things. I wore all the outfits. And then we went on this trip to a, um, uh, it was called Planet Shakers. It, it's the equivalent of Hillsong um, in Melbourne. And uh, I, I had this very distinct moment as this kind of repetitive music erupted and as people just lost it and were crying on the ground and screaming. So, and wait, you went, like, you, your family went to a, a kind of evangelical church? Yeah, you know, it was, it was not even my family. It was the youth group. Someone thought it would be interesting to go in to a different church. We went to the Uniting Church, which is the kind of, like, um, like the, the, the sweet down-the-road babysitter of churches. They're like, we don't have wine, we've got grape juice, have some bread. Um, so we went to this evangelical megachurch and I had this moment of kind of revelation Theatre. Um, as this is theatre. This is not. This, this isn't God. This feeling that they're calling the Holy Spirit is just. It's art. And I was like, I mean, this sucks, but also this is pretty good theatre. And maybe it would feel good to also be involved in this kind of world. And so I kind of fell into the theatre world. Um, 
which has its own problems with the idea of kind of, of transcendence and the costs of transcendence. Um, the theatre can get very, especially young theatre makers, can get very hung up on this idea of um, of forcing the audience to experience something of of kind of um, physical impact, and uh, that takes a toll on an audience. And it also takes a, a big toll on performers. Um, but yeah, there's this kind of um, this way in which art provides this kind of joyous ecstasy and and loss of control which is kind of voluntarily and joyously given how did you discover that you could get around this sense of wanting to be controlled all in control all the time that was a sort of hilarious moment in the book for me which 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 moment about are you talking about resisting the urge to want to throw up when you <laughs> overdoing oh, yeah. it a little bit oh yeah i kind of just at one point my body went hey it's been 20 years, but I'm sorry, mate, it's happening today. And there was this just kind of uh, exhausted um, giving over of control and also this kind of fascination of sort of observing these things happening in my body and being like, God, I had no idea it knew how to do that. Like it knew how to stop breathing so I wouldn't inhale my own vomit. What an amazing, what an amazing <laughs> thing. I think um, curiosity about your own body can be a really wondrous way to kind of start um resisting that shame of sort of thinking, God, if I had to do all this voluntarily, if I had to think about all these things my body does, I'd be dead in about 14 seconds flat. Um, and this kind of uh, being aware of how the body knows, it knows how to be born and it knows how to produce life and it knows how to die. And to, to be awed by that, I think is a really valuable thing. I think we should also emphasize that there are a lot of sort of confronting things in both of these books, but they're also wonderful, uplifting things that, you know, there's a lot of love, there's a lot of support. Um, and one of the things, Chloe, that I noticed particularly was that this there was a family of honey eaters that uh. moved into your property, flew over the Vale of Tears yes. and ended up in the house. First of all, tell us what the Vale of Tears was <laughs> and then what it meant to you to have this sort of family, other yes. family moving in yes. with you. Um, well, the Vale of Tears is a, is a stretch of, um, of lawn, that's Don's name for it, where our, our sons sort of got into these nightly, um, you know, stouches of, of who had bowled who out or, you know, there was just sort of they'd go out for this, you know, happy time throwing a ball and inevitably someone would be crying. Um, but... We had, uh, during the period when, when Don was going through chemotherapy, a, a, a pair of honey eaters made a nest in a really spindly uh, potted maple tree just outside our veranda. And um, they became um, very important to, to our family, particularly initially it was Don who he went, um, had to go into hospital at one point and I would go in every day and he'd say, how are the birds? How are the birds? And if the, if, it, if one of the kids, you know, we had a, at that point, a, a seven and a four-year-old, if, if the four-year-old was, had his like plastic hammer near the, um, the nest, he had to sort of be moved somewhere else. Or if the, if a ball went anywhere near, it was, and then, and slowly then the birds, um, you know, the, the, the eggs hatched and um, we, which we watched very carefully uh, how the, 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 the young were being raised and I guess it felt like we were, um, you know, suddenly had entered into a children's book. But I, I'm very aware of the way that we use animals in a way in our stories to kind of, you know, tell, to sort of, uh, to tell what's un unbearable to us, you know, through, through animals but for Don who um, who loves birds very much he actually felt like um, he was um, a kind of avian delegation had um, you know come into the garden to give him a blessing in in his sort of moment of of strife so um, when they fly back in the in the when they've flown back in the years you know, uh, following, I'm, I'm very thrilled to see them. <laughs> I can just imagine him standing there in his dressing gown, checking on the, the honey eaters. Um, Sarah, we meet your friend Charlotte, um, who, um, not her real name, as you point out in the book, um, compulsively harms herself through cutting. What um, impact did that have on you 
while you were dealing with your own kind of self-harm issues? Look, I think that essay is is um, the source. It is a concentration of a lot of anger from a lot of years of um, witnessing. I have a lot of female friends with borderline personality disorder, um, as it is currently known, and um, that is an enormously... Um, complex diagnosis to receive and there is a great deal of um, cruelty within the mental health system for people with that diagnosis. It's a um, quote-unquote personality disorder uh, which often manifests in um, a very kind of heightened um, and unhelpful emotional coping strategies. And um, I, I had these kind of terrible experiences of, of what, witnessing people who had experienced dreadful trauma as young people um, and who were displaying uh, what, for all intents and purposes, are complex PTSD symptoms. And, the, and the, the, that chapter is a lot about um, the kind of call to, to reclass BPD as CPTSD. So for many years, I was the person on call for several people who were in states of extraordinary mental distress. Um, and that was hard, obviously. And um, that kind of the gravity of that role was, was really impactful. But I've also witnessed those people move through a system which is so ill-designed to help them. Um, I've seen my friends, in, you know, dragged to hospitals by their spouses, um, having never wanted to go because they knew they would be treated poorly and then having been treated with just such, such flagrant cruelty um, by the people who are supposed to be helping them. But then I've also watched these women go through um, uh, very, very good um Systems. Uh, there's a there's a, a course called dialectical behavioural therapy, which has ex extremely good outcomes for BPD, and seen them kind of flourish. And, and the thing that was most extraordinary about both of them was the moment when someone, a professional, said to them, "What what are you what are you good at? What do you love doing?" And they had just never been asked that because they'd always been asked, "In what ways are you dysfunctional? In what ways are you maladapted to society?" And so watching these kind of dear friends of mine realise that their their personal experience. Um, is is a mode of extraordinary resilience and of coping against terrible, terrible odds and actually that they have all of these amazing skills and they're extraordinarily creative and they're smart. God, they're both so whip smart and are now in kind of this better place kind of despite the systems that are in place rather than because of them. Uh, we're going to take some questions. There are mics on either side if you have something pressing you'd like to ask our guests. Um, Sarah, you also referenced the character Jude in the 2015 novel... A little life, um, and there's a suggestion that some traumas are too deep. Some people are so broken that they should be allowed the mercy of their own deaths. You push back quite strongly against this idea. Why is that? Because I, I mean, reading a little life was a very—I mean, it, it was—it's a, a harrowing book. It's been harrowing for everyone I know. But I, um, my partner would often find me just sobbing at two in the morning, and he was like, "What? What are you doing?" And I was like, "I know, Jude. I've known. So I've done." This I've hidden all the knives in a house. I've held a person while they're desperately begging to be allowed to kill themselves. And there, there was a time with one of my friends where I thought, yeah, you know what, I'd, I'd let you do it. Like if I could gather everyone that you knew in a room and have you say goodbye and let you go, I would let you because you are in so much pain and you have been through things that a human body and a mind should never have been through. And now she, because she's been through these extraordinary therapeutical processes, she is she's thriving, you know, like she she works as a um, a creative art therapist and she's teaching children to self-regulate in a way that she never learned to as a child. And um, she, she you know, she says to me, I, you know, I, I still have anxiety. I still, you know, there's still ways in which my body is um, primed to be terrified of the world. But, God, I'm so glad I'm alive. And I, I found um, the treatment of Jude in that book um, just such a disservice to him and such a disservice to the possibilities of, of good mental health care, um, which are not easy to access, but I think that book really um, kind of scoffs at the notion of psychiatry and psychology and, and in doing so it, um, it murders its protagonist. As you point out, more than half, 54% of Australians with mental health problems uh, don't seek help. One of the things I often get asked, Chloe, is as a cancer survivor, is... Um, what has changed? What is, what's changed in your outlook on life? And, and I often, I mean, it's quite, quite a cliche to say that you do find gratitude in everyday things. That's certainly true for me because you've been kind of given a second chance to appreciate these things. One of the things that's sort of interesting for me is 
how the partners of people with cancer change? How does your outlook change? Um, has it changed for you? Um, this one sentence came up for me. Um, if, you own, if you have only so many chances to say, watch your child eat a bowl of ice cream, that act becomes profound. What became profound for you? Um, well, I suppose when you're the partner, you're, it's profound to be able to watch your partner who has, um, you know, had a, a lucky escape, mm. watch the child eat a bowl of ice cream and for the child to feel their father's gaze um, as, they, as they do. So there's a kind of, you know, luxury, it now seems to me, uh, in um, their pleasure in each other in each other's company and, you know, being able to, um, uh, you know, ask, ask about family history and experience and, and to have, and to be able to, you know, have very simple moments. So, um, I guess that, that, that is profound. And I, I mean, I think that, you know, since, um, we've, we've been through this, Situation. I mean, the whole world has suddenly, ha in the last sort of two and a half years, has had to, um, you know, think about bodies, Sarah, and um, and what our bodies can and can't do, and you know, we've we've all had to adjust in what our ideas of of living a good life mm. um, might be. So I think that it's sort of um, in the water at the moment. These kind of existential. Mm questions what would roger what would roger say you know he kind of takes it all in his stride i guess <laughs> it's a, a pillar of strength that's the thing about the i think the partner often yeah. bears quite a heavy load because you can't really do anything except support you know the, it's the, true it's true but i i also you know i don't know maybe we would you know roger and i would both say we were not the ones with our i mean um you know about to kind of cock it Carcass. Thank you. Thank you. That was a. That's that's another nice euphemism. But you're plunged into darkness, you know, or or you know, hear your last bedtime story. So, in the midst of all this, while you're trying to kind of massage the way the kids are hearing this message about what's going on, uh, Tobias asks you a bombshell question: Will I ever die? Yes. Um, do you remember how you responded? How did you? deal with that? Big question. Well, that was, a, you know, I mean, that was a moment where um, we had found out that there was this cancer and that it was probably this feral strain, um, which was going to be like a kind of having a sniper pointed at you. And we were keeping it, you know, we didn't want to upset them. And so there was a sort of like a bright, happy families mm. scene. And this child just you know, because they know when they don't know, um, lined me up and, um, you know, went through everybody in the family, you know, and this sort of shining six-year-old says, am I going to die? And you think, of course you're not, you know, you, how could you ever die? You're, you know, you'll be immortal, but then you have to say, yes, I'm sorry. Uh, but then he kind of lined up everybody and ended with, will, will, will dad die? And, uh, that, and, um, you know, that's that's the moment where, I mean, all of the kind of advice books say, don't claim you're not going to die. Um, be be honest. And, and um, being honest, you know, being able to have these kind of conversations, I realise now that children are natural philosophers and uh, they, they want to be invited into um, this conversation. And I guess, Sarah, you know, that was your question to your dad. Um, and it's, it's, you know, and I don't know. I mean, that's, that's you know, that's the right answer. It's, uh, unfortunately, um, we didn't get round to talking about quite a lot of things, including the role of your mother, Sarah. I think I would love to have heard a bit more about that. And also your friend, Stuart, who made quite an impression on me and indeed on you. But we're going to have to end it there. We're like right on down to the second, one hour. The books are Bedtime Story by Chloe Hooper, the first time I thought I was dying by Sarah Walker. Chloe will be available to sign copies of the book after the session. Please thank our two writers, Chloe Hooper oh. and Sarah Walker. Please thank our amazing host, Anton.
Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.